I'm Rabbi Ami Hirsch of the Stephen Wise Free Synagogue in New York, and you're listening to In These Times. Secrets have power, and uncovering them can be a painful or liberating process. But it takes tremendous courage. No one knows that better than Letty Cotton Pogrebin. A feminist icon, Letty is a nationally acclaimed writer, activist, and public speaker. She is a co-founder of Ms. Magazine and author of 12 books. Her most recent, Shonda, a memoir of shame and secrecy, is an astonishingly candid memoir, telling the story of three generations of 20th century Jews for whom the desire to fit in and the fear of shame either drove their aspirations or crushed their spirits. Letty, welcome to In These Times. Thank you, Ami. Uh, I've admired you for years, and I can see your building from my building since I live right around the corner when I'm in New York. We don't see each other too often, but it's uh, wonderful to have this opportunity to talk to you. You uh, identify yourself as writer, activist, and author. Uh, so I wanted to be able to discuss all three. Do all of those things in your mind uh, go hand in hand, writer, activist, author, or is one more dominant in terms of your self-perception? No, they, they have to be equal because otherwise, as an activist, I would have nothing to write about. <laughs> and as a writer, I would not have a place to put my passion. So I have to have each feed the other. And there are also, I mean, there's also a multiple identity that I don't necessarily put on my professional bio, but I'm also a person with a husband of 59 years and three grown children and six grandchildren. So there's a whole other life as well that's in the balance. So you've written extensively. I think you've written uh, 12 books, two novels, and 10 nonfictions, and dozens and dozens of columns in in all of the major media outlets of the world. I love speaking with <laughs> such accomplished writers because rabbis write a lot. We are not necessarily by our predisposition writers. So I can tell you from my perspective, it's hard for me, but of course we have to do it all the time because that's one of the key ways we communicate. How do you do it? What is your discipline as a writer and what advice would you give to people who want to be like you? Well, first of all, I really view rabbis as quintessential advocacy writers. When you stand in the pulpit and you're, you've written a sermon, you have a goal in mind. Whether it's a Torah text or whether you're dealing with contemporary issues, you're going to refer them back and forth to Jewish tradition, and you have to write very carefully about them. Let me say that. For me, things percolate for a very long time in my mind. I can change my own mind in the process. It's a very interesting discipline to test your um, principles and precepts before you put them out in the world. I am not disciplined. I spend some some days hiking, you know. I should be writing. I mean, I usually save things to the last minute if I have a deadline because it fires me. But to give you an idea of my process, my books take a really long time. This one, Shonda, A Memoir of Shame and Secrecy, my 12th, which just came out September 13th. That took five years. A book I wrote about non-sexist, non-racist, multicultural child-rearing took eight years. I think the shortest book I wrote ever was How to Be a Friend to a Friend Who's Sick. I wrote that after I had breast cancer. I felt there was some urgency in getting that out there 
because I was rather surprised at the behavior of some of my friends, and I thought, people really don't know what to say and don't know what to do when people are sick physically or sick at heart, and I have to get this out there. I'm a laborious writer. I work on every sentence. I sculpt them. <laughs> I don't just blurt them. That's always been my style. I marvel that my daughter, Robin, can... She just attended the unveiling of the Obama portraits that went into the White House. She had already done a story on the ones in the Smithsonian. And she went to the ceremony at 11, and the story posted at 2. To me, that is superhuman. But that's the, that's the difference between journalism and other kinds of writing. But unless I'm on deadline, I don't force myself to write. I just, I just have a moment when I want to sit down and I want to put it all down. And then I can sit for 16 hours except for bathroom breaks. I love that image of when the inspiration hits you, it pours out of you, and you might not even be aware of the passage of the hours. Very, very true. You're not aware of what your unconscious mind and the workings of your kind of intellectual wrestling match are going to produce, but you feel it coming. It's like labor pains. You know, you want to get this out of you. I want to ask you, uh, Letty, about some of the activist and author part of your uh, identity. In the early 90s, you wrote a book called Deborah Golda and Me, Being Female and Jewish in America. How is it to be female and Jewish in America nowadays? And has it changed since you wrote the book? Well, first, I have to say that um, Deborah Golda and Me, which is still being studied in colleges and Jewish studies courses and in feminist courses, was a result of my efforts to reconcile Judaism and feminism. I was raised high conservative. My father was coming out of orthodoxy. He was a Talmud scholar, and he was a lawyer who graduated from NYU Law School in 1923, which was quite unusual for Jews. There were quotas everywhere, and he was a lawyer at the age of 23, um, but he also was a bar mitzvah tutor. But his orthodoxy had had been somewhat, I don't want to say diluted, because it's transformed in a positive way, where he was responsive to the conservative movement. And so I'm a result of that upbringing, and uh, he only had girls, and so I was the last, and I was therefore educated, quote, like a boy for that era. I was sent to Hebrew school. I graduated from Hebrew high school. I went to the yeshiva of Central Queens for two years. And I was one of the first girls to be bat mitzvahed in conservative Judaism in, in 1952. I'm 83, so my it's 70 years since my bat mitzvah. It's 30 years since I wrote Deborah Gold and, and Me. It's a different world for Jewish women. I was, I was prevented from counting in the minion when my mother died, when I was 15 years old. My father wouldn't count me in the minion. He said, Asur, Asur, forbidden. But my father had been halacha for himself. He smoked on Shabbat. He was not supposed to make a fire. He drove on Shabbat, but he parked the car four, four blocks away, you know, and walked there as if he'd come from home. But he would not bend the uh, rules for me, as men would never at that time choose empathy and open a gate to spiritual expression to half of the Jewish people. But I have lived through it all. I've lived through my bat mitzvah was a Friday night. I could not read from the Torah scroll. I couldn't read from the Torah. I read from Nevi'im, from prophets, out of a book. 
It was Friday night, and my reception was <laughs> Manischewitz wine and sponge cake. All the little boys I knew had receptions that were festivals and feasts and extravaganzas at the, you know, Astor Hotel or the Plaza Hotel. And now, you know, it's equal. I sit in synagogue and I marvel when I see a woman cantor, a woman rabbi, a woman president of the synagogue, and the bat mitzvah girl. I, and it's a, it, it blows my mind because it was so off limits for me that I cannot to this day wear a tallit. It just reminds me, it makes me feel like a male impersonator. And when I see the Torah this way and I put my little yad pointer on it, I have to swallow hard because the Torah letters start to dance around. I, I mean, it, it shimmers for me. It's That's how powerful it is. Because I'm used to seeing a man up there hold up the scroll by the handles, and we all see it from 35 feet away. Now, here I am, almost touching it. And it, it gives me chills. So from a... Jewish perspective, if I can characterize what you're saying, I think you're suggesting that we've made progress, that things are better for female Jews now than they were in the Jewish community. Ever. Ever. What about being female in America nowadays? We've made some progress. We've had some very severe setbacks recently, in particular with the Dobbs decision. Do you feel that being female in America is better now than when you were uh, younger, or uh... well, immeasurably better. But for me, the uh, the painful part is to have slid back from the point of progress when we were celebrating. The fact that things can erode, the fact that we all didn't recognize that freedom was something you have to nurture and nourish, you cannot suddenly say, okay, we've got it. I also think we didn't take seriously the manipulation by the right wing of uh, the abortion issue, of how they stole the language, pro-life, when no one, to me, is more pro-life than somebody who wants to bring a child into this world wanted and loved and able to be fed and supported. That's a pro-life person. The other is a pro-pregnancy person, you know, is a person who simply wants women to serve the role of breeder. I respect people who have another view on this matter. If I believed that abortion was murder, I wouldn't have one. But I don't. I believe that abortion is part of health care for women. Until we get a totally safe method of birth control, abortion has to exist, and we in principle and in, in, in ethical terms, have to be able to be the sovereign of our own bodies. As one of the key figures in the previous generation of feminists who fought for the constitutional right to an abortion. In the first place, right. But we haven't given up. It must be very painful for you to have witnessed its overturning this year. Can you give us some of your feelings when you knew this was coming down the pike and what are you feeling now? What do you think went wrong? Why did it happen? We knew in, in May when the Alito's draft was leaked, we knew it was coming. But even then, we couldn't believe it because 
the Supreme Court has never taken away a right that had been granted, and stare decisis was pretty reliable, even with a court like that. And then when it actually happened, I think it galvanized us, and I think the Republicans are going to regret it. I think in a very bizarre way, it may be our deliverance because Republican women have awakened to the fact that this isn't about abortion on demand and women who want to have their nails done and then go have an abortion. This is about bodily integrity, personal autonomy, and their right to have good medical care when they have miscarriages or ectopic pregnancies. If every doctor is going to have to pass a kind of legal questionnaire before performing whatever service uh, medical services is called for, they're not going to ask you if you're Democrat or Republican. They're going to be very skittish and cautious, and everyone will pay. So I'll tell you why I think this happened in the first place, because I think back in 1973 when this Roe v. Wade was announced, everybody thought, as I did, that's it. It's done. You know, we have a very reasonable trimester system. Since then, everything about that decision has been eroded. We know that. The trimester system has been eroded. The, the request to have parental consent, the waiting period, the enforcement that you have to look at, sonograms, every aspect of what we considered freedom has been strapped to a set of requirements that pretty much took away the right, made it a contingent right, whereas other rights are not contingent on 25 prior little acts of rather difficult fulfillment. Democrats just don't seem to have the capacity to anticipate the fervor of the backlash. The fervor of the backlash is driven by feelings as strong as ours, people who are as activist as us and who feel the opposite. We thought that they would sort of sit back and accept defeat. That didn't happen, and it took us years to realize um, that we had to develop new strategies. It was really too late. Young women have taken for granted the right. They have never experienced what I have experienced, and I write about it in the new book, which is life when abortion is illegal, is underground, happens on kitchen tables, happens with knitting needles and lie and throwing yourself down the stairs. So maybe there has to be that generational wake-up call. I'm hearing Republican women say, I want my daughter to be able to. And then they start reciting the, the feminist litany. Where were they all this time? I think what you said is so important. There's nothing in politics that can be taken for granted. Everything changes. Everything needs to be defended. Uh, and it's a constant struggle. And uh, so part of, and I, I gather that this is what you're saying, ladies, part, not not all of it, but part of why we experienced a setback is on us, that, that we didn't work hard enough to defend the right. Yeah. You just wrote a fabulous, important book. Tell us what the book is about, why you wrote it, what's important about it. Shonda, A Memoir of Shame and Secrecy, defines pretty much by uh, implication my entire childhood. I was raised with a Shonda, and the meaning that I took from it is, don't talk about this, it will shame us. 
Don't talk about that. It happened, but it's a disgrace. Hide this. That's a secret. This has got to be hidden. No one can know. What will people think? What will the Goyim think? A Shanda for the Goyim was the worst of the Shandas because we would be judged by the world we, we aspire to. We want to be real Americans. We want to be accepted. I'm speaking of the immigrant generation, my parents' generation. But many of my cousins, who are my generation, inherited all that. We didn't want our grandma around when our friends came to play because her accent was so bad. We didn't want our grandpa around because he wore funny clothes. We were constantly made to feel aware of our impact on others. And the hunger for acceptance was a motivation for both shame and yearning and aspirations. So I can't say it was all bad because we were trying to hide our imperfections so that we could excel and be accepted on our own merits. At the same time, we internalized a lot of toxic feeling. I have found that many secrets, not only in myself and my parents, who were the original liars, who made me become a, a different person when I found out that they had lied to me about some very basic things in my family history. But also, I discovered a big shopping bag full of letters, you'll remember, in which my parents wrote to each other when my father went to Palestine to settle his, his father's estate in 1938. My father and mother, being children of their era, wrote letters once a day, twice a day, during the three weeks he was gone. I learned all about them from those letters. I learned their mishigas. I learned their pathology. I learned their marriage. And it enriched what well, I was writing a, a, a traditional chronological memoir, you know? For anyone who might be interested, here's my life. And suddenly this theme, I see this theme, I see how deeply affected I was by the secrets I didn't know existed, and then the secrets I had to keep, and then the secrets I found out. And then after my mother died, my realization that her whole life was a lie because she was totally ashamed of herself. She was ashamed of being poor. She was living with people who didn't speak English. Her siblings, there were seven siblings. They lived in three rooms on the Lower East Side. Classic immigrant story. She worked in a sewing machine factory. She was able to work herself up to be a designer for Hattie Carnegie, who's kind of, you know, the Donna Karen of that day. But when she married my father, she had to stop working because my father was a lawyer and he had his own shame issues. He had to be, you know, the patriarch. He had to make the money. He had to present himself as a success. And you couldn't have a working woman wife if you were a success in the suburbs. You had just moved into the suburbs, which for us was Jamaica, New York. It was considered many steps up, even though we lived in a two-family house with my aunt and uncle and her three kids on the other side. But it turned out my father was lying about his life because he wasn't a, a prosperous lawyer. He was a one-horse shay. He wore a suit. Every, all the men in the neighborhood wore work clothes or shopkeeper clothes or went to the tailor shop or went to the garment center. My father wore a three-piece suit. He maintained a front. 
his imperfections, his failures, his fears were buried, hidden. I always marvel at how I neglected to focus on how this is part of my heritage as an educated Jew. That I sat in shul every Shabbat and every holiday, and I listened to our sacred text, and the secrets were everywhere in the text. And God hides, Hester Panin, God hides God's face. God models hiding. And God connives with Rebecca to favor Jacob. And they fake it, and they put hair on his arms, and they pretend, and we put on masks, and we pretend, because we want to get whatever it is, the blessing, the patrimony, the job, get into school. So I suddenly saw the parallels in my own powerful and beloved heritage. When you say Shanda, the Shanda for the Goyim, the Shanda, the embarrassment, the shame, the disgrace, it was both a personal issue, a familial issue, but that in turn was informed by the status of the Jews in America in the mid-20th century? Is that what you mean? I do mean that. I mean, it was informed by, and it was seen to be required in order to make it as a real American, that you couldn't admit all that you were. You couldn't show your imperfections. In my family, cancer was the C word. So illness was whispered. Illness was a shanda because you couldn't find a match for your kid if they knew there was a serious illness in the family, it might be in the genes. I mean, who wants to marry into that? And you find that particularly Jewish thing in the mid-20th century? Or is that a common, you know, people whispered the C word. The Gentiles do that too, no? I was writing out of my own experience. It's a memoir. But I know that friends of mine have reported their fear of shame. And I put in the book a couple of those examples. And I know that they wanted to be what they weren't. I give the example of a black writer who remembers putting on a yellow towel on her head to approximate being a white girl with blonde hair. She wanted to be what she couldn't be. And for many of us, we wanted to be what we thought we could be. We bought the American narrative that if you work hard, you can do it. But Dara Horn, in her recent book, People Love Dead Jews, she points out, and I had not, ever realized this, that the documents facing immigrants at Ellis Island did not allow you to change your name. You came in under the name you had on your passport. She said, we tell the story that that the customs officers, and we tell it in every story, every family I know, certainly my own, that the customs guy changed our name. Because as Dara Horn said, we're too ashamed that we would give up our name to please the Goyim, to make a success in the Goyish world. We're ashamed. We're embarrassed. It's a disgrace to our people, but it's a survival tactic. And there it is, that wonderful nuance between something that's both a disgrace and a survival tactic. It's the way we made it, to use a really bald and ugly word, but it's the way we achieved, it's the way we began to kind of make our way, is by presenting the best face, by being exceptional. You couldn't deny it. Harvard had a 10% or whatever, 5% quota. But you couldn't deny that 
the smart people were out there who deserved to get into Harvard. And when things evened out, we were way beyond our percentage of the population in everything, way past the quotas. So Jews are for a merit system because we do well. But you couldn't do well if there was a barrier that said no Jews allowed. A summer community that my husband and I spent 42 years in, three years before we came, the ferry schedule to Fire Island said, salt air, a restricted community, in print. And they meant blacks and Jews. So we forget how the pressure on us to be exceptional in order to overcome these barriers, because we had to make ourselves absolutely, unquestionably excellent, or we couldn't do it. So this feeling that you're describing, some of it must still stay with you when you see somebody in public life doing something good and they're Jewish. There's some kind of feeling that flows through you. And the reverse might also be the case when, you know, somebody like Bernie Madoff is so prominent. Do you feel this kind of shanda? This is shanda for the Jews? It's a shanda for the Jews that Jews misbehave to such an extent. Bernie Madoff, Harvey Weinstein, Jeffrey Epstein, James Levine. It's shocking to me. Members of our own community, I'll say, and women's lives have been hurt by it. Women's careers have been ruined by their having to either acquiesce or to what demands were that humiliated them and that took advantage of them and were sexually abusive and shaming or had to just back off from their career aspirations under that person. To have seen that is, for me, a shanda for the Juden. It's, to me, a shock. The rash of Jews who came out of the woodwork as offenders, it was not just shameful to me. It was unbelievable. It must be some mistake type unbelievable. I couldn't believe that Jews behaved that way. But I can't believe believe that Jews behave that way when 18-year-old soldiers bang Palestinian men over the head with their rifles. I can't believe that either. I can't believe it when houses are blown up for something somebody in the family did. I'm ashamed, and I also can't believe it because I was raised with a Jewish ethos that was so strong in me. I just assumed everybody else got the same thing with mother's milk and father's head of the Shabbat table lectures. And it turns out, no. Let me ask you uh, just about lies and secrets and suppressed feelings in the family. Do you feel that some things should remain secret? Or do you think that when we grow up and we discover some of the hidden secrets that our parents kept from us and our relatives and they didn't talk about certain things, do you think that some of that is legitimately, should legitimately be kept secret. I'll give you an example. My mother died three years ago, and she grew up under the harshest of circumstances in the Ural Mountains in in Russia. During the war, her father was one of those people who was grabbed by the secret police, and we discovered later, executed six weeks later, uh, they never heard from him uh, again. And she refused to talk about her father her whole life. She directed us before she died, to these boxes that, and she wrote 700 pages of her memoirs. 
And in her memoirs, she describes what happened at length from the perspective of an eight-year-old child who lived through that and witnessed that. And she specifically wrote to us. It was something that, you know, our whole lives we were curious about. We kind of thought it was not only strange, but damaging, you know. And she wrote in her memoirs, to you four kids, the reason that I never said anything to you until after I died is because I was afraid that it would damage your upbringing if you knew the suffering that I went through as a child. So do you think that some things legitimately should be kept secret from other family members and from the kids? I think that that should have been told and should have informed your family's sense of the inheritance of pain, of respect for what your people went through to get where they are and to get here. She was afraid of what we call now inherited trauma. Couldn't tell stories about her father because it would open up wounds. What did that do to her? And I use the example of the Shonda in my family that I didn't discover until long after my grandparents were gone. And that is that my grandmother was a runaway bride in a little shtetl called Pilipitz in Hungary, what was then Hungary. If you remember Fiddler on the Roof, she was betrothed to somebody, a counterpart of Laser Wolf, the butcher, way older than herself and not anybody she loved or cared about. In fact, she was a little afraid of him. She was in love with my grandfather, who was a Polish guy over the border, lived over the border. And she tied together bed sheets in the bridal chamber. They were married. But she tied together bed sheets before the consummation of the marriage. And she jumped out the window of this little inn where they had been put for that marriage night and ran away to my the man who became my grandfather. Now, when we knew our grandmother, she was in her 60s when I thought she was ancient. She never talked. And when she talked, it was in Yiddish. Had I and the other 12 cousins on that side known that she was such a rebel, this quiet little milk toast of a woman who was so in the shadow of my grandfather, we would have had a role model. We would have had an image of a woman in 1896 doing what the most transgressive thing that a Jewish woman could do in that era. And that would have been an image that we could have talked to her about her life. We knew nothing about her. I lived with this woman. She lived in our finished basement. I never knew what to talk to her about except cooking, just cooking. So it was a great loss. And for your mother, it was a great loss that she couldn't share her childhood with you. And so the question is, who do we sacrifice for keeping the family like have a happy, healthy attitude? We inherit a lot from our, and we need to absorb it and uh, have our parents help frame it for us. When they frame it for you, it's not just dumped on you, but it's framed as a form of heroism to have survived that. I do want to say that I advise people in, in Shonda, the book, to try very hard to live a secret-free life because since I managed to do it through some difficult, you know, heavy lifting in the psyche, I have felt light, unburdened, able to engage with people at such a deeper level because they now know things about me that they thought were perfect. So it's an opening, it's an access route to the real person in your life. So this has been wonderful. I want to thank you very much for giving us so much of your time. 
Thank you, Ami, and I, I feel very, very fortunate to have been invited. Thank you, Ami. I love this discussion with Letty. She has been a central figure in the Jewish community and American society for decades. What an amazing author. Since, as Letty said, rabbis and advocacy writers are in similar lines of work, we advocate for a cause and for values, rather than straight-up reporting. I can appreciate the unique skills and contributions that Letty has gifted us. First, this unbridled honesty in her writing is sensational. It is a very rare quality that only the best writers possess. To write something meaningful and lasting, we must bear our souls. It is the responsibility we have to those who read us and to the vocation of writing. The best authors are also the most honest, and when they reveal their inner struggles and dilemmas with brutal candor, then, and only then, do they truly move us, because we recognize our own lives and theirs. Their struggles are our struggles. Their families are our families. So take, for example, her newest brilliant book, Shonda, a memoir of shame and secrecy. How many people would even tackle such a topic? How many of us would reveal family secrets? And if they decided to do so, the very nature of the book, even its very title, requires nothing but unadulterated honesty. Anything less would be artificial, a shadow of the light, not the light itself. Pick this book up and read it, you will recognize yourself in it and you will recognize your own relatives. Second, all of us owe a huge debt to Letty for her advocacy in both Jewish affairs as well as generally in American society. She has been on the right side of many of the struggles that define our lives today. On the Jewish side, just to listen to her recounting what life was like for a young Jewish woman when she was growing up and to compare that to Jewish life today is to appreciate how far we have come and the significant contributions Letty herself made towards our progress. The Jewish world, as Letty pointed out, is incomparably better now that in many parts of the American Jewish community there is gender equality. If not always in practice, we still have a ways to go, then at least in our principled aspirations. As she told us in our conversation, things are better than ever for women in American Jewish life. Letty was instrumental in this progress constantly reminding us of the central Jewish values of dignity and opportunity. She has inspired generations of American Jews and rabbis and Jewish leaders too. I remember fellow students discussing her writing when I was in rabbinical school in the 1980s. On the general side of American life, Letty has been a true social justice warrior way before that term was popularized in our times. Many of the advances in feminism and gender equality we now take for granted were the product of immense efforts by many people, and Letty was in the vanguard of these struggles. Just to take one example that we spoke about, the Dobbs decision that overturned Roe versus Wade. Letty and her allies were so successful that many of us were lulled into a false sense of security. We thought once Roe was decided, it could never be overturned, that a woman's right to terminate her pregnancy was permanent. Letty eloquently reminded us that freedom needs to be constantly nurtured, the true nature of human existence is that we are in constant motion. Nothing is solid. Everything is in flux. We are moving all the time. And the political pendulum swings to and fro. We can take nothing for granted. The constitutional right to an abortion that most of my generation and younger Jews have taken for granted practically our entire lives, this right that we assumed was unassailable and permanent, 
has crumbled before our very eyes. Progress like gay rights, minority rights, the right of women to make decisions for themselves on matters affecting their own bodies, these advances must be fought for indefinitely. There is no relaxing, only perpetual vigilance. It takes decades, often centuries, for bedrock principles to settle into the soil of the American landscape. There's nothing automatic about liberty, freedom, and constitutional protection. Martin Luther King reminded us that human progress never rolls in on the wheels of inevitability. Every step towards the goal of justice requires sacrifice, suffering, and struggle. It took a near century from the proclamation of emancipation to the Emancipation Proclamation. And it took another full century from the Emancipation Proclamation to the enshrinement of the Voting Rights Act. Political gains must be consolidated politically. The struggle never ends. Letty was so poignant in reminding us, and especially younger American women, that we cannot take anything for granted. Ask yourselves, would Dobbs have happened had I taken the constitutional right to an abortion more seriously and less for granted? What if I had been more active, more persistent, more generous in supporting groups who work to uphold these rights? What if I had voted more frequently and voted for those who more rigorously reflect my values? Jewish sages teach that we are not obligated to complete the work, but neither are we free to desist. Trying is what Judaism expects. What if I had tried harder? And finally, I'm grateful to Letty for reminding us that we get better through struggle. We do not seek, nor do we expect, a challenge-free world. We do not seek to empty challenge from our lives, but to challenge the emptiness of life. Not to escape struggle, but to struggle with escapism. We should want our fight to count, to mean something. Amidst the many challenges of the years ahead lay opportunities for sacrifice and service and ennobling struggle. Until next time, this is In These Times.